0: Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tame. Nā mihi o This is our first show of 2023. A new political year, a new Prime Minister and an election. This morning as Auckland recovers from the first floods and Cyclone Gabrielle gets closer, we sit down with the newly appointed Minister for Abacus City to ask how Auckland will cope this time. Then, a year since the occupation of Parliament's grounds, we'll show you where the protest leaders are now. And later in the show... They're one of the most successful heavy metal bands in history, but you might be surprised to hear what System of a Down's lead singer has to say about art and politics. We'll have that shortly, but we begin this morning with Cyclone Gabrielle and the new Minister for Auckland, Michael Wood. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning Jack. Big System of a Down fan? <laughs> <laughs> um, about 20 years back with Pink Floyd, maybe, in terms of musical taste, but yeah, really yeah. interesting group. We'll stick around. Um, let's begin with Cyclone Gabrielle. So they're recording winds of about 130km an hour at Cape Reinga. Already it is raining across large parts of the North Island. What will distinguish the response in Auckland this time from the response three weeks ago? What, what's needed, what
1: we expect and what will happen is a much greater level of coordination and a clarity of communication to Aucklanders. Yeah, you know, When our when big city like Auckland, and in fact not just Auckland, the entire Upper North Island is in the frame here, people need to know what's happening, they need to know what to do, they need to know where to go to get information. So there's been a lot of work over the last couple of weeks to make sure that agencies are lined up, and we'll be providing that clear information to people.
0: Whose responsibility is it?
1: Uh, look, it's, it's a responsibility of... Uh, uh, our emergency response is managed locally. That is the way that our system works. But we as government ministers and a government have worked hard over the last week or two to bring real clarity and focus to make sure that our expectations are clear and to offer all of the support that we can offer to make sure that those local responses are adequate and that the communication is clear.
0: If Auckland is smashed again, do you trust Wayne Brown to handle it appropriately? I trust that collectively, we will be able to help Auckland to recover and to
1: rebuild. That is our absolute focus at this time. I've spent a lot of time on the ground in Auckland over the last couple of weeks, visiting small businesses, Mm. homeowners, onion growers, washed out roads. Mm. There is a big job ahead of us. We can do it, we will do it, but the only way we do that is together, local government, central government, community and business, and that'll be part of
0: the role that I have as Minister for Auckland. Do you trust Wayne Brown to handle it appropriately?
1: Uh, yes, I do. I, I trust all of the leaders of our city uh, to make to, to have the city's best interests at heart and to be focused on working together.
0: What are you most concerned about in Auckland?
1: Uh, look, there, as I've got, got about, there are a couple of key things which people talk to me about. Uh, the first is the, the physical rebuild itself. There is a very big job ahead of us here, uh, and one of the things we're going to have to work through is what it is that we rebuild and where we rebuild mm. it. Some of the infrastructure just needs to be replaced, but we actually need to think carefully about how we make sure that the infrastructure is resilient, because in an era of climate change, we are going to face these sorts of flooding events again, unfortunately. If you ask me what concerns me the most, this has been another kick in the guts for Auckland and after a couple of difficult years. Mm. And so I think there's a real piece here about supporting Aucklanders who who perhaps just felt over summer we were beginning to get back on track post-COVID and this has been another really difficult event. So a part of my role is going to be working through these issues and making sure that we have morale and
0: confidence in the city where it needs to be because it has been tough on people. Where is the city most vulnerable when it comes to Cyclone Gabrielle?
1: Mm. Look, I think uh, when it comes to Cyclone Gabrielle, We do know the areas which are going to be most prone to damage because we've had the experience of the past couple of weeks. So it'll be those low-lying areas where water can rise very, very quickly indeed, and coastal areas which are particularly exposed to the winds. So we face the the dual threats here, both of rising waters, Mm. uh, combined with high tides, but also very extreme winds, probably stronger than we had a couple of weeks ago. And so that's why there's clear advice to people in Auckland. Look around your yard, make sure those items which could fly around and cause damage are tied down or put away because that potentially
0: poses a real risk. Since your appointment as Minister uh, for Auckland, you've had some communication with Mayor Wayne Brown. You you and the Mayor have met, I understand. Can you talk me through how you plan to be communicating over the next 48 hours?
1: Yeah, look, I I will be in uh, direct contact with him, but my office and his office are also Mm. in regular contact as i say in terms of our emergency response we have a model in new zealand which is around a locally delivered response mm. but we as central government are very clear that we can and we will offer all of the support that we can so for example defense force staff that we've provided uh, to come
0: in and, and help with the cleanup and to help with what might happen over the next couple of days right for some time now rural communities have complained uh, about being overlooked in favour of urban communities when it comes to transport expenditure. What message do you think it sends regional New Zealand that the Minister for Transport is now also the Minister for Auckland?
1: Uh, well look, that's something that we very much have in mind and of course the Associate Minister for Transport is, uh, also is uh, the Honourable Kerry-, Kerry Allen is someone who is closely connected to the regions and has a specific focus on our regional and rural transport mm. networks. We've been a government which has invested extensively across regional New Zealand in the transport network. We've increased the maintenance budget by 50% after it was frozen by the previous government. We've invested in coastal shipping to improve the resilience in those areas. We've reinvested back into rail. We have critical projects that we're rolling out in the regions to improve the resilience and the safety of those roads. There is a lot more to do. But I would just convey uh, to people that we have a real focus on making sure the whole network is well looked after.
0: Now, the government says it's going back to basics. I want to understand what that actually means for the transport portfolio. You've said that Auckland's light rail project is under review. Is it happening or not? Uh, When it comes to the transport portfolio, getting the
1: basics right, right means being a good steward of the network that we have And that's, as I say, why we've really focused on those issues of of maintenance in the network. Yes, there is more to do, but we've ploughed the resource in there. We've had a record programme rolling out this summer. I
0: I have, sorry to interrupt, I have looked at the the numbers for repairs across state highways in the country. And and whereas you may be investing more, the actual repair numbers when it comes to state highways have been flat for the last five years. Mm. Uh, we've been increasing significantly the amount of resourcing that we put in.
1: The resourcing is yep,
0: increasing but the actual right. repairs and, aren't. And this
1: is one of the challenges that we face. Why we've, is that? We, we face, along with many other sectors, increased costs mm. across our transport network. So to maintain a, a lane kilometre of state highway mm. costs about 40% more than it did five years ago. So that, that's a reality. That's about labour right. costs. It's about it's also about uh, increased community expectations, environmental standards, safety standards. That's why we continue to look at the resources we put in. We have another government policy statement on transport that we're about to consult on in the coming months. Yeah. And this will be
0: an area of real focus for well, us. So I want to understand how that policy statement's going to change if, you, if you're going to a back-to-basics approach. Back to my question, Auckland yep. Light Rail, is it happening or not? Yep. A, a with the
1: broader government program we're looking at everything at the moment. So you can ask me about a range of other government policy uh, uh, so, priorities, okay. and the answer I'll give you is the same. So, these are important projects. All of them are being looked at to make sure that we've got the focus right at the moment, and we'll give clarity on that in the coming weeks. Yes, yeah, so but what's what, that clarity what going to
0: look like? Are you just? Yep. Uh, I just want to understand this yeah. process. Are you going to come out and say, these are the things we are continuing with, these are the things we're not? Yeah. Yes, as the Prime Minister has signalled and started that process
1: this week, he will provide that clarity around areas where we're focusing and areas where we, we, we're not given the... Period of time that we're in. But I'll be very clear about this. In Auckland and our other growing cities, we absolutely have to have well-connected, functional public transport networks. That is what has been lacking for decades. That's what's led to congestion, increased carbon emissions. Let's remember this flooding ultimately Mm. is about the fact that we're in a climate crisis and we're not going to let up on that.
0: Okay, I I just want to understand clearly what comes under the purview of a back-to-basics approach, and and if literally everything is up for grabs at the moment. So is the clean car discount up for grabs? Oh, oh, look, as I say, we're working through the process
1: across the whole government programme. All ministers have been asked to look at the whole programme. We're working that through and provide the clarity in the coming Uh, weeks.
0: Waka Kotahi is going through the speed... Uh, limit review at the moment. I know that is strictly under Waka Kotahi, but you give them direction. Is that under review at the moment? Well, the answer is the same, Jack, that we're looking across the programme, not just in transport,
1: but other areas to make sure that we have got the focus right. But if I can touch on both of those, you know, the clean car discount is a a classic example of a policy that we've rolled out, Mm. and it's working. We are driving and supporting record numbers of New Zealanders into clean vehicles. So why is it under review? Well, because the prime minister said we need to look at the whole program, just make sure that we've got the focus. Oh,
0: why right. doesn't this government know what it stands for?
1: Oh, we absolutely know what we stand but for. But I,
0: I mean, these so, I mean, so you say that Auckland needs an integrated public transport network. You, you've been poured think, 70 million dollars at last count into the light rail project so far. You don't know if it's going ahead. You don't know if the clean card discount is going ahead. What the speed limit review—is that under review? As I say, we're looking at the programme. What I mean, this is... But, but, but it's, not, it's not correct to say
1: that we don't know what we stand for. In transport, it's very clear. We stand for okay. a low emissions transport system and we've been rolling out policy across public transport, across walking and cycling investment and other areas to
0: deliver that. Let's go to one policy you have confirmed then. Did you see the oil companies' profits last week? They're, they've been doing pretty well. They've been doing and, very well. And around the world. Yeah, the, the most profitable year in history mm-hmm. for the six biggest uh, oil and gas companies. How... Can you choose to extend the fuel excise tax cut when our biggest city is facing the very real effects of climate change? Mm. Well, this, this really goes back to
1: the focus that we need to have at the moment. We face that very real challenge. Every Kiwi household also faces a very real challenge of cost of living pressures at the moment. And we know that one of the simplest and most direct things that we can do is to manage down some of that transportation cost. So, yes, we we have that policy, which is extending till June, but we've also extended out the half-price public Mm. transport for people as well. That policy is around about an additional $700 million to June, so that's $700 million Mm. of additional cost that Kiwi households are not going to have to pay because we're going to provide that support at this time. So what you're saying is you've
0: put short-term concerns over long-term concerns?
1: Well, if we were not addressing the long-term concerns, that would be a fair comment, but of course we are. We're continuing to roll out policies like the clean car discount. That you don't like know our, if you're keeping. Like our investment in, in public transport, walking and
0: cycling across uh, across uh, the country. There's a huge programme I mean, in there, are, there are other, to there reduce are, our emissions. There are but other but options, more targeted options, a, a, as opposed to just extending the fuel excise tax cut that might not incentivise people to drive as much as they were. Well, of course, we, we do quite a lot of work to understand the impacts of these policies. One of the
1: things about people's driving habits is that if they don't have other choices, then generally, no matter what the price is, they'll probably need to drive to get to work. And so what the modelling shows us is that actually the the additional amount of driving that you might create because of a slightly lower cost of fuel is actually relatively limited. The most important thing that we can do if we want to reduce the Mm. total amount of driving that people Mm. do, which is part of our policy, is to provide the positive other options it being safe for kids to walk to school people having reliable public transport. And that's the investment we continue to roll out, whether it's Eastern Busway that we've invested in, Mm. North Western Busway improvements, Wellington and Christchurch, um, and smaller towns like Nelson and
0: Whanganui, we're investing in better bus services. Can you say with certainty that the petrol companies here have passed on the full weight of that excise tax cut to consumers.
1: That is something that Minister Megan Woods has been monitoring extremely closely and the information that we have to hand does indeed show that um, it varies a bit from time to time, the price bounces around, but largely the impact of that reduction has been passed on to consumers and it has been therefore an
0: effective policy in terms of helping people with cost of living. I still want to understand the coherence behind this policy because the petrol excise tax goes to the National Land Transport Programme and that's used to fund repairs to roads. Even before the floods, the emergency fund within that program had been depleted. So we now have a situation in which you are subsidising people to use more petrol and borrowing to cover those road repair costs, which incentivises people to drive more, which in turn leads to more emissions, which intensifies storms that then damage our roads. That's incoherent.
1: So so the way in which we're managing the fiscals around this is that there is less revenue which comes into the National Land Transport Fund. The Crown is directly providing that revenue to Waka Kotahi so that they can carry on with their programme. As I say, the modelling that we have with this actually shows that the impact in terms of uh, an increase in people driving is actually relatively modest. But we, we just have to come back to the basics of this. Households are feeling the squeeze with cost of living we as a government have a focus and have a responsibility to address this. This is one of the most direct things. When someone fills up their tank, this is $17 less if it's a 60-litre tank. If someone's using public transport to get to work and come home from work, they're probably $25 a week better off because Mm. of the half-price policy. This makes a difference at a time when Kiwis need us to be focused on cost of
0: living. All right, Minister, stay with us. We will talk immigration after the break. Tēnā welcome back to Q&A and Minister Michael Wood. Let's talk immigration. Now, the government has introduced a new visa processing system and promised to process work visas in 20 working days. Now, according to the Immigration New Zealand website, 90% of visas are being processed in 49 days. At a time when employers and businesses are desperate for workers, why is it taking so long? Mm. Uh, The information that I had this morning is that the average processing time for work visas is 20 days. What what about for 90% of them, which is the measure that Immigration New Zealand, as you well know, uses to measure whether or not it's a success or not?
1: Yeah, yeah. So look, we have a range of different ways in which we measure that we've had a very big focus
0: over the last few months on
1: the processing time. Sorry, I'm going to stop there right there.
0: What's the measure for 90% right now?
1: Well, 90%, if if that's a figure that you've checked, I'll I'll take your word on that. So 49 days, not 20 days, 49 days, Mm. 10 weeks. Mm. Yeah, and as I say, the average time across the whole lot is 20 days. We have have a three-step process. Employer accreditation, which takes an average of five days. A job check process, which takes an average of six days. And this process, which takes an average of 20 days. Now, let me, if I can just address the issue directly. The processing performance, particularly in the first few months of the policy, was taking too long. And people needed us to speed that up. So the actions that we've taken over the past couple of months have been firstly to put Mm. more people into the system to get through the processing work more quickly and secondly to be streamlining some of the internal processes. So what we've seen over sort of the November, December, January period has been a steady reduction in the number of um, cases that we have on hand right. because we are now seeing an increase in productivity. It's not quite where we need it to be, where does it need but to it be? is steadily improving at this stage.
0: Okay, so I, I, again, I just want to emphasise: 90% is the measure that Immigration New Zealand uses to, to, to gauge the effectiveness of the processing times. So 90 the, the time in which it takes 90% of visas to be processed, 49 days for working visas at the moment, 54 days for visitor visas, where does it need to be?
1: We have those metrics and so we need to improve them, but it's also about the number that are sitting there on hand, kind of stuck in the system. Okay, what, where so do you need it to be in
0: terms of those metrics?
1: In terms of those metrics, we need it to be at the targets that we, we have set, both in terms days? of the numbers yeah. that we have and in terms of the the time that it takes for the majority of them. So we're working hard towards that, we're putting the resource in and we're looking to simplify the system as well. We did have a huge number of applications mm. that came in after we opened post-COVID. Now that's that's not an excuse, no. but but it, it's a part of the reason uh, why in those first few months we ended up with a backlog across all of those categories. The key thing people need to understand is that for me as a Minister, that is a priority and we are putting the resources in there and that is leading to improvements over the last couple of months. Okay, but there's and a long we'll, way to go, isn't and there? And we'll keep the foot on the pedal.
0: Yeah, well I mean, it's yeah, 90% at the moment 49 days as opposed to 20 days, so it's two and a half times longer than your targets at the moment. So your adept IT system costs about $50 million, there have been anecdotal reports of significant issues, applications being lost in the system. There were more than 500 reported faults in the system uh, come the start of November last year. Looking back, and I realise you were not the minister at the time, was it the right move to introduce a massive new IT system when the government did?
1: Oh, look, it's difficult to go back and unpick decisions, but broadly speaking, I would say you need to bring in and make sure that you've got a fit-for-purpose IT system in a huge system like this. Immigration New Zealand processes well north of a, a million visa decisions mm. every single year. So that's the scale of what we're dealing yeah, clearly with. Clearly there and are you,
0: significant issues with the debt.
1: Well, it, uh, it's always the case that when you put a new system in, you will have a bit of a period where you need to work that through, and some things will need to be fixed. So with the and benefit of hindsight, was
0: it the right time to introduce it then?
1: Oh look, well, I, the, I think whenever you introduced it, you'd have some of those challenges. Mm. I think it's better to try and get the right system in place and get the system moving. And my job as Minister is to make sure that we... To do it in the middle of COVID,
0: knowing that when you open the borders, you just told me you expected a a significant surge in visa Mm. applications.
1: Yeah. Look, I think having the right system in place is the right thing to do. And we are getting to a place now where where because of the way... Effectively, the change from the previous Mm. system to ADEPT is it's a task-based system. So it enables different steps of the visa process to be pumped through quite quickly instead of an individual officer doing it end-to-end. But not quickly all enough the,
0: if we're still looking at 49 days for 90% of All of visas. the
1: best practice across other systems tells you that's the most efficient way of doing it, and I'm confident that as we move on, it will deliver right. real out- good outcomes for people.
0: Are Immigration New Zealand officials relaxing their risk indicator checks for visitors?
1: R- relaxing is the wrong word, but what we have done to make sure that we are processing them in a safe way as quickly as we can... Is to review the broader set of rules uh, and processes that we have within the system. And what does that mean? And well it means that we make sure that we're applying risk rules in a way that are appropriate. So if we have risk rules in the system that are important to keep us safe and to manage the risk, of course we need to have those there. But if we've got risk rules in the system that have been hanging around for a number of years and perhaps duplicate something else, then we have a Can look give at me that an to example make sure. Of oh so for example, um, Uh, we uh, when we've looked back at the risk rules we've had some that have perhaps related to um, particular incidents that might have happened 15 years ago where a rule was put in place to manage that particular situation and since then every visitor visa application has had to be checked against that and it's actually no longer relevant. So those are the it sort of things that we does It sounds like
0: you you are relaxed. I mean the whole reason that people have to apply for a visa in some cases as visitors is cuz there may be some sort of security concerns around. No, it sounds like you are relaxed. What I would say is that. we have
1: not relaxed anything that relates to uh, risks that are important for New Zealand and the safety of New Zealand and managing our board as well. But we mm. have had a look across the system to make sure that the rules we have in place are focused on those things and we don't have anything extraneous that will slow things down and that is what has enabled us in part to start making sure that we are getting better processing times across those categories the
0: median wage requirement for workers is set to increase to 29.66 at the end of this month i know that's giving uh, causing a lot of concern for some businesses are you committed to that increase
1: uh yes i am this is a at really the end of this month still Yes, correct. This is a really important part of our immigration rebalance. We have had an immigration system in the past that frankly was very focused Mm -hmm. on maximising the volumes of very low wage workers coming into New Zealand. That opened up avenues for exploitation, it was bad for those people and actually it was bad for our economy. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that we have challenges in parts of our labour market is because pay and conditions have not been sustainable. So we're very clear in our immigration rebalance. Yes, we need access to the skills where New Zealand has shortages, but we're not going to do that on the basis of low-wage so, labour. So you're and that saying is the that... difference between our policy and the National Party, who have said explicitly they will lower the, wa- the wage right. requirements for migrant workers. That would take us to So the you're saying direction. that
0: migration is driving down wages? Uh, Which is a different position (laughs) to the Productivity Commission.
1: Well, the Productivity Commission had a a nuanced view on this. They said that on the whole... They they, had a different view on this. No, if if I can explain, they said that on the whole, and I agree with this, um, immigration is a positive thing for New Zealand in our economic development, and in the aggregate, in the whole, Mm. it doesn't have that effect. But they did say that in particular sectors, it could be having that effect. And we definitely had sectors where we had very high volumes of people being paid very little, very high levels of Mm. exploitation happening and we're not just we're just not gonna stand that. but I'll come back to this broader point we have whole sectors where low wages mean that we have workforce shortages and Mm. crises in New Zealand the way to fix that isn't to go back to low wages it's to build
0: sustainable terms and conditions we have to keep moving I know you have a very big couple of days ahead I hope you've packed your galoshes Uh, thank you very much for your time Minister Michael Wood just a reminder we publish Q&A every week as a podcast if you want to listen to the podcast, it's in all the usual places. Just search for NZQ&A. And if you want to contact the team, please call it Ed or mai. These are our main platforms. You can email us, find us on Twitter or on Facebook. After the break, this time last year, Trevor Mallard had just started blasting Barry Manilow on the grounds of Parliament. The occupation might have been cleared, but where are the protest leaders now? Hawkey mai, welcome back. This time last year, crowds were continuing to build at an occupation on the grounds of Parliament. The group might only have represented a minority view, but the occupation quickly became a hugely divisive subject. A year on, COVID restrictions have been lifted, and Fina Owen spoke to some of the key figures from the occupation to see how they reflect on the protest.
1: Look at this whānau.
0: We're setting up, we're going to pitch
2: up. You could say the occupation, occupation started right here with the first tent up.
0: We're here to stay.
2: And that's the voice of this man, Taporo Kawakawa, recording his tent pitching on Facebook.
0: We figured the roads are all blocked, and there's six security guards. If we can get them up, surely these people here have tents and they'll start following suit.
2: And so they did, covering every patch of Parliament's lawn and then sprawling beyond the gates. Tipul was there to reclaim ancestral land, he says. He's taken his occupation on the road with other campers. Occupying Mahanga Bay in Wellington and now here at Lake Horofenua, he sees himself as a protector.
0: A protector. Protector of our treaty rights. Um, protector of um, our national rights, both Pākehā and Whenua. Even though a lot of people don't see it and understand what it is I'm talking about or what it is I'm doing.
2: Hey friends! We're going around asking them what their favourite part of the process is so far.
3: What's yours babe? Honestly, everyone is just so full of love.
2: Hi. During the occupation, social media influencer Chantal Baker amassed 98,000 followers on Facebook. Stop it! No, stop throwing stuff, stop! Stop it! Get out of the Okay, let's get out, let's get out. Did you think that, that there wouldn't be that element, that that element wouldn't be attracted to the occupation? Do you think you were naive in thinking that people wouldn't do that? I would just say that I'm definitely a non violent person, and I've never really been around people that have ever kind of resorted to violence in any way. So it's not something I'm accustomed with. But at the same time, I'm not surprised because at the beginning of the day, I mean, the police came in very forcefully grabbing people. This is what you wanted, keyboard warriors. Since that final day when her live stream got over one million hits, Baker has had two Facebook pages shut down. I think there's been a lot of disingenuous contact between Facebook, Dart and NetSafe and that's resulted in the government being able to choose who gets a voice and who doesn't get a voice. Her father, Layton Baker, took on a leadership role at the occupation. A few weeks ago, he popped up on a preferred Prime Minister poll and 3.9% want former new Conservative leader Leighton Baker.
0: I was very surprised, absolutely. I mean, I'm not part of the political party at the moment.
2: So you're thinking of putting a political party together?
0: Uh, well, I won't say anymore at this stage, but we, we do have a plan, so something will come out in the near future, yeah.
2: Today is the day that the people take back control of New Zealand. We've had enough of the bullshit. Leighton Baker will be competing with other former Parliament protesters like Outdoors and Freedom Party co-leader, Sue Gray. When you walked into the grounds, what did you find? Since these days at Parliament, conspiracy theorist Liz Gunn has also announced she's giving politics a crack. Is there anything else you want to say? Thank you for all that you're doing, Liz. Thank you for this but the mandates are over. There's a new Prime Minister. What drives these influences? Are they hooked on the attention, the notoriety even? If I wanted to be notorious, I think I could have picked a platform that everyone found popular, and instead I picked something that was very difficult to do that influenced my life in absolutely drastic ways. Following the occupation, Voices for Freedom have attempted to influence politics, standing candidates in local elections with little success. Last week, they told their followers they're working on an exciting secret project. 253 people were arrested in relation to protest activity in and around Parliament grounds. Most charges were withdrawn, but there are still around 66 active prosecutions. The Independent Police Conduct Authority received 2,000 complaints. Their report is due late next month. On Friday, a small gathering of people who had taken part in the occupation got together at Parliament. While many Wellingtonians would rather forget the 2022 occupation of Parliament, these people have vowed to make March the 2nd, which was the final day of the occupation, a calendar fixture. And this year, they'll be commemorating it at a camp on the outskirts of Danny
0: Finn Owen with that report. One of the challenges for the authorities with the parliamentary occupation was distinguishing those who posed a serious security risk from everyone else. Byron Clark is an independent researcher who's taken a keen interest in New Zealand's extremist community. He's documented some of the characters swirling around the space and the risk they pose in his new book, Fear. And Byron Clark is with us this morning. Tēnā We, Welcome to Q&A. a You've said that not everyone who attended the parliamentary protest should be considered an alt-right extremist. Mm. So how should we distinguish people on the alt-right who present a threat?
3: Mm. So many of the people who went to the protest went there because for one reason or another they were opposed to vaccine mandates or vaccines. Some of them had you know, things in their personal life that led to them being there. But some of the core groups who are organising it are people who we should consider extremists, and they're trying to have an influence in that wider movement opposed to vaccines and mandates. So for people who are just along there, not adopting wholesale that far-right mm-hmm. worldview, those people you know, can be pulled away, and we should you know, work with them to pull them out of that conspiracy mm-hmm. theory rabbit hole. But we need to be aware of the, the more extreme core that's making up this movement.
0: And what has happened to that core in the last 12 months? Mm.
3: So after the protests, they've, they've kept going. Uh, some of them are running alternative media platforms, as it said in the clip, um, Voices for Freedom, who are actually one of the more moderate groups, are trying to intervene in local politics and may have some other things planned. Um, and likely we'll see some of these groups who are organised into, into small parties intervening in the election this year. Mm
0: a lot has changed in 12 months the majority of COVID restrictions have been lifted, the vaccine mandates are gone and we have a new Prime Minister. I wondered what impact will Jacinda Ardern's resignation have had on this community?
3: Mm. So there was a lot of particular hatred for Ardern among these groups um, and I think a lot of that was rooted in you know, misogyny and, and things like that. Um, so I think it may be a bit more muted now um, but for a lot of that core group they want to portray the idea that all mainstream politicians are mm. part of the grand conspiracy. So we, we saw uh, Christopher Luxon in Rangura recently where he was accosted by people from Voices for Freedom and Counterspin Media so they're definitely going to be targeting other politicians as well and not even just the government politicians but opposition as well. But I do think that the particular vitriol that they had for Ardern will mean that Hopefully uh, the rhetoric is a bit less violent now. But
0: What is the no. risk? D- dare I ask, and this is kind of blunt, but what is the worst that can happen?
3: Mm. So in these online spaces that these groups inhabit, they talk about um, you know, the need to hold trials and then execute politicians for, to death, not just politicians but also journalists and science communicators and people involved in the vaccine rollout. Mm. Um, they really do believe some of them that um, the vaccine was a tool used for genocide, and and that violence against politicians and others will be justified. So I think there's there's a risk of you know attacks on politicians or on journalists, as we've seen overseas, like the British MP Joe Cox being assassinated by a far right extremist. So I think we need to be aware of that, particularly in election year, and have some safeguards and some security around um, around politicians, around the media. Um, during this time.
0: Do you have confidence in police and intelligence agencies in New Zealand when it comes to protecting
3: politicians, journalists and public figures from those threats? I think that more could be done. Um, The police can only enforce the laws that we have and we don't really have the legislation yet for what I've called a, a post-Gamergate environment where, you know, we have the harassment act if an individual is harassing someone, but if we have these mass harassment campaigns, there's not really a way for police to deal with that. And an issue might be that a person who carries out violence might be somebody who, you know, hadn't been noticed because it's just one of thousands of people mm-hmm. online who, you know, was saying possibly violent things, but the same same sort of things everyone else in that space was saying. I mean, that was the, that was the case for the, the Christchurch mosque shooter. He'd been active in far-right Facebook groups mm. in Australia, but he didn't look any different from any of the other hundreds of people in that group, so there was no way to tell that he would be the one that would then carry out violence.
0: But can you actually stifle that kind of communication when it comes to the online world?
3: Mm. It's difficult. Um, some of the mainstream social media platforms have made a bit of an effort to... Um, remove some of the misinformation and disinformation and some of the more violent um, violent rhetoric that's seen there. Mm. Uh, that's pushed a lot of these groups onto um, alternative um, social media platforms that are far more permissive and, mm. and don't really have the same community guidelines. So it's made the reach of these people a little bit smaller, but I think the mainstream social media sites were so slow to act that people were still on there long enough to funnel everyone to their mm. new alternative social media platforms.
0: You said that we should be doing more, especially in an election year. Mm. The government has put its hate speech reforms on the back burner for the time being. What's mm. your response to that?
3: Yeah, I think that's disappointing, um, because on the far right, they're certainly seeing that as a victory, that the government has you know, put this on the back burner. And it will potentially mean that there'll be less of a legal framework to deal with with some of these things. Um, The one person who's been charged under the part of the Human Rights Act that um, 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 outlaws uh, inciting racial disharmony, you know, as, as someone in this space who made a YouTube video calling for the genocide of Māori. Mm. And he could be charged under existing legislation. But if uh, someone were to call for genocide against a religious group or against the LGBT community, you know, the, the current legislation wouldn't be able to deal with that the same way.
0: But if they were to directly incite it, they could mm. be, right?
3: Potentially. Right. Uh, it depends really what they say. And whether a link can be made a direct link can be made to that. I mean an issue we're dealing with is what gets called stochastic terrorism where people are saying things that aren't directly leading to violence but are making the chance of violence happening more likely. Yeah. So to go back to the the Christchurch shooting, we know that he was watching people like uh, Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux and mm-hmm. a number of other far right YouTube personalities. Now no no one of those YouTubers is directly responsible for what he did but consuming all of that material made what he did more likely to happen.
0: I know that opponents to the hate speech reform, though, would say that the problem is this is a wishy-washy area. You call it stochastic. I mean, this is the nature of the free speech debate. It can be Mm. very, very hard to distinguish what is free speech and what is hate speech. Mm. Ultimately, is there any way to exercise the risk posed by alt-right extremists?
3: I think... It's a big question, and there's a lot of things that can be done that are part of the solution, but not the whole solution. Um, there's a bit of talk about you know education making people more media literate, more able to mm-hmm. recognize disinformation and misinformation. that's going to be part of it. Of course, that's not much use for people who have long since left formal education who are going down these conspiracy rabbit holes. so it can only be part of the solution um, and I think there's you know things like putting out a counter-narrative to the narrative that the that the far right is putting out. That's mm. something I've attempted to do with my work and with the book. So, there's lots of things that can be done that can mm. form part of a solution, but it's, it's a very big social problem and there's no easy answer to it.
0: All right, Byron. Thank you very much for your time. Thank we you. really appreciate it. That is Byron Clark. His book is Fear, New Zealand's Hostile Underworld of Extremists. It's available this week. Coming up on Q&A, imagine this. It is September 2001, just two days after the 9/11 attacks, and the lead singer of the band that's sitting right at the very top of the Billboard charts publishes an essay that says America is partially to blame. That was Serge Tankian. And two decades on, I ask him if he'll ever stop speaking out. Kia ora, Tifana. Welcome back to Q&A. As lead singer of the band System of a Down, Serge Tankian has spent his life singing or speaking up. He's been a staunch critic of the American justice system, the US wars in the Middle East and he's lobbied international governments for greater recognition of the Armenian Genocide. Serge continues to divide his time between work with the band and his various solo projects. And his solo art show has just opened in New Zealand. System of a Down is one of the most successful heavy metal bands of all time. Between 2001 and 2005, three of their albums reached number one on the Billboard charts. And in the years since, their music has racked up billions of streams online. Throughout the band's existence, System of a Down developed a reputation for activism and many of the band's lyrics contained overt political messages. In particular, they were fierce critics of American foreign policy and the Iraq war. These days, lead singer Serge Tankian divides his time between homes in New Zealand and Los Angeles. And in a new show, Kiwi in Pangaea, he's combining visual imagery with audio compositions. Visitors use an augmented reality app to combine the sensory experiences. And as with all of Serge Tankian's creations, Kiwi in Pangaea is the work of an activist.
4: The idea started long ago um, you know, I've been wanting to score for films and I've been doing it for the last you know, 15 years or so, films and video games and TV. And I just love the idea of scoring to paintings because to me, paintings are not static you know, uh, visuals. They, they actually move, when I, you know, when you really dive into them, when you experience them. And so it's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. So about 10 years ago I started, and I, I thought I was going to be composing for some other person's painting, and then I thought, you know, I wonder how this piece of music would look on canvas, so let me try it myself. And luckily I liked the first experiment, and I kept on going, and that's how I started painting.
0: As an artist, it occurs to me that you have always been driven by politics. Mm. And I wondered how
4: politics factor in this work. I was an activist before becoming an artist as a young teen. And uh, in the US, the kind of taboo nature of the lack of proper recognition of the Armenian genocide made me an activist because I thought if if this, if we're in a democracy and because of geopolitical, you know, uh, because of geopolitical reasons or uh, economic reasons, um, you know, uh, Turkey was being, uh, you know, basically protected from its genocidal past by the United States. What other truths out there are there out there that are being hidden uh, from public purview uh, that we don't know about? So it made me an activist of all things, and um, so when I be- when I started doing music, it, it-, it naturally. Um, became my delivery for social ideas. And, of course, that's not just what we do, both with System and myself, but it's a big part of who I am. And how does it factor in this work? Um, well I mean it, it, with art it's a little less obvious the political or the kind of social uh, commentary but if you look at a piece like violent violence which you can show later um, it's it's a very strong statement uh, it's a violin that for example is, is stabbed itself with its own bow and you know it's just a you know um, it, it, it produces a lot of different emotions from people and a lot of different um, kind of responses mm. um, and, and I love the way the art just like music can be interpreted in different ways actually even more so um, because you know it's all in the eye, eye of the beholder you know someone looks at something and they make something out of it that you as the creator may not have seen and I find that to be very interesting because I think Um, art moves through the you know collective subconscious Mm -hmm. and at best we're just skilled presenters it's all there for us to kind of perceive and and uh, attain you were born in beirut Mm. uh, to armenian parents
0: you grew up in los angeles you live in aotearoa but to what extent does your armenian heritage factor in your identity
4: today you know, my, my roots are, Armenian. mean, my uh, grandparents, all four of my grandparents are survivors of the Armenian Genocide from Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And uh, we, I, I was seven years old when we le- left Lebanon during the Lebanese Civil War, went to the U.S., grew up in Los Angeles. It's, it's a unique experience to have traveled the world with System of mm-hmm. a Down and, and my own solo projects. And, you know, I've realized that the beauty of culture is not in the flags or the borders or any of these things, it's, it's, the, you know, it's the culture itself. It's the art, it's the music, it's the food, it's the colors that we each contribute to the world. It's the knowledge, it's the experience of an old indigenous population. You know, so w- my Armenian-ness is that kind of learned experience mm. being a Kiwi, being an American, You know, being whoever, a uh, citizen of the world. Um, it's interesting because, because what is home to me, I've been, I'm, I'm writing actually a book, and I, I'm, you know, that's a very interesting question. Where is home? Because different parts of the world fear, feel like different parts of a home, mm. you know? Because where, I, where my people come from, I can't really go to. Mm, yeah. New Zealand has always been very um, vocal, very courageous in terms of the international political arena whether it's non-nuclear, um, whether it's, you know, the way that it handled its foreign policy. I remember in when I first came to New Zealand in the early 2000s, um, I remember the Iraq war was happening mm. um, with the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And I remember the foreign minister actually retorting against su- supporting it and saying, why should New Zealand be supporting this? You know, I, I find that to be very encouraging in a world that's so polarized. Um, for there to be a country that is mature in its uh, standing in terms of the international arena, irrespective of the size of the population mm-hmm. or its GDP or any of that. I, I miss Helen Clark's New Zealand in some ways. Why is that? Well, because of that, because of that kind of, you know, independence and and prowess and... and, Don't they exist exist today? I think it does. I think it does. But I think there's some international pandering more so than there used to be. I think New Zealand, you know, like the United States, like many countries in the world, like France, like the European Union, like most of South America, Mm -hmm. need to recognize the Armenian genocide. It was the first genocide of the 20th century. We know that Hitler was encouraged to commit the Holocaust because of the lack of, you know, um, transparency and responsibility uh, uh, given the Ottoman Turks after World War I, you know, for their role. So it's a very important thing. And it's an indigenous population that was killed.
0: September 11, 2001, we have the attacks in the United States. And on exactly the same day, System of a Down's album, Toxicity, goes to number one on the billboard charts. Just a couple of days later, you published an essay imploring the public to consider the root causes of terrorism. And I dragged that essay out this week and read it. There's a line that stuck out to me. What everyone fails to realise, you said, is that the attacks are a reaction to existing injustices around the world, generally unseen to
4: most Americans. How did people respond? Horribly. Um, it was a very difficult time, obviously. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of, um, you know, there were a lot of you know, red flags and orange flags on TV, more terrorist attacks um, were, were, were guessed would happen. And we had just released our record. It hit number one. Our, our song on the radio was Self-Righteous Suicide. It was Chop Suey, you know, talking about self-righteous suicide, which is mind-blowing if you think about it. And so it was taken off the radio. Um, There were death threats against myself and the band there were it was it was heavy Um, and Because of the article because of and and for me it was something I did often is kind of wrote uh, a kind of geopolitical Understanding of something or my thoughts Mm -hmm. having to do with a certain topic And I didn't think we would have gotten that kind of reaction We I was on Howard Stern defending my words Mm -hmm. a few days after and while starting a tour in in this climate of fear and Hate mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. Um, but to me, the truth has to always prevail, even when it's uncomfortable to say it. In fact, you know, the, the, the courage comes in saying the truth when it's not uh, popular in terms of the public mm-hmm. opinion. And few, few other artists did that as well at the time. I remember Maynard from Tool, Madonna, the Dixie Chicks, and everyone got a lot of flack for it. But in retrospect now, when, once we see what has happened in history, um, I think not only are those that spoke the truth at the time were redeemed, but they obviously gained some respect.
0: Well, towards. that's what I wondered about, because you, I mean, you were incredibly outspoken about the invasion of Iraq, but you were also critical of, of America's involvement in Afghanistan. And you said that if America weren't careful, bombing Afghanistan would end up creating more martyrs down the line. Yeah that would inevitably threaten the United States. and If you look at the length of that conflict and
4: what was achieved in the long run, you you must feel vindicated. No, the world is not a better place for it either way, so there's no vindication. But, you know, I mean, it was obvious that the U.S. was very much set on a unipolar, unilateral decision-making process in terms of going after the perpetrators. And in the essay, I said we should definitely go after the perpetrators, but use international and multipolar institutions like the United Nations and stuff, so that it won't be a Western film, basically. Um, you know. Um. How do you how do you think then
0: about about say so the conflict in Ukraine and, and the U.S. increasingly sending more
4: powerful weapons? to help in the fight against Russia's invasion? Obviously, Russia's invasion is horrible. It's um, de- um, destabilized, not just the region, but the whole world in terms of energy markets, in terms of food supplies, and it's 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 horrendous. Um, there's We don't have enough time to discuss the things that could have been done on all sides uh, by the West, by Ukraine, as well as Russia before the invasion. And there are a number of steps that that could have been taken, it's, it's always the case. But um, I think I think the West has been, uh, you know, supplying Ukraine with the weapons to defend itself, and, and that's very commendable. But it's coming to a point where this war is really, really, you know, uh, destroying that country, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, of course, they're fighting for their independence, they're fighting for their lands, it's just a matter of you know, when when are people going to speak? Mm. When is this going to be resolved? Because war is not the answer, as we all know, it never has been. Um, and my fear is that, and, and this is always the case, as you w- know well with geopolitics, every country has its own um, mm, greedy needs, whether it's resource acquisition or what they deem is best for their country, and they will use other countries mm. to attain it. And. You know, nobody does anything because they like somebody in in foreign politics. Nobody, you know, um, countries that don't have oil, countries that don't have anything to gain, are left by the wayside. Um, right now, there's 120,000 Armenians in the gorno that are being blockaded by uh, the government of Azerbaijan through supposed eco uh, activists, and they are not getting. Uh, supplies of food—they're running low on medicine, mm. uh, baby—you know—supplies uh, and stuff like that—and they're trying to ethnically cleanse that region. Azerbaijan provides um, oil to Europe, uh, supplanting Russian oil. But in reality, what it's doing is repackaging Russian oil, mm. and Europe knows that well. So it's a whole hypo- hypocritical purchase of uh, oil uh, from Azerbaijan. But you know, they're dealing with another dictator to supplant, an, you know, Putin. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really horrible, and you know the world. There are people speaking out, but there hasn't been any sanctions on Azerbaijan, for example. And New Zealand hasn't even said a word. New Zealand doesn't. Most of the New Zealand public doesn't even know about no. this. So, you know, because you know that region of Nagorno-Karabakh and those people living there may have nothing to offer the West. May I say? Let me ask this then. You've dedicated your life to art
0: and activism. What have you learned about artists' capacity to affect
4: political change? Mm. A good friend of mine is a documentary filmmaker named Joe Berlinger. Um, He's made a film called Paradise Lost. I always think of him when when I'm thinking of this question. Because when he made that film, it was about the kids that were jailed uh, for a murder uh, in in the United States. And once the film was made, a bunch of lawyers took up the case again and through DNA investigations, because of the film, Mm. those kids were freed. Mm. Um, Art actually made an incredible physical change in the world and affected the the, the, uh, scale of justice Mm. in the immediate present. Now, it doesn't always do that in the immediate present. Like most of what we do as activists through art or through just activism, you know, we may not see the fruits of our labor in our lifetimes, but it doesn't mean that's not what we should be doing. Finally, Serge, why New Zealand?
0: Why do you, I mean, it's great to have you here, but um, why are you here? The fish and chips joke,
4: right? (laughs) No, um, I came in the year 2000 on the Big Day Out tour, which is no longer existent, unfortunately. and I just felt this incredible sense of calmness and intuitive sense of belonging and I was in the middle of Auckland and traffic and everything going on, and I just felt like it, it, i don 't know if it was my sensory like smelling um, the the air and, and and just seeing the beautiful landscape around the bay and the rolling hills there was there was and of course, it was my knowledge of new zealand's geopolitical stance in the world um and 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 all of the things that new zealand stood for at the time it was a combination of all of that Mm. but more than anything it was a feeling and i kept on coming back every year exploring doing holidays here finding a home getting residency and you know it's it's amazing to me because i still have that feeling of comfort here Mm. even though i don't spend the whole year here because I travel a lot and and we have you know my parents are in the states and so it's you know we go back and forth a lot but I really feel comfortable here (laughs) that's really it.
0: That's Serge Tankian you can see his show Kiwi and Pangaea at Sweet Gallery in Auckland and Wellington stay with us Q&A is back in a moment Cool, Mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Stay safe in Cyclone Gabrielle. We will have the very latest updates for you up to the minute at onenews.co.nz. From the Q&A team, Hey te Ara, wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.